Hi, I'm Ryan Becker, and you're listening to the Rock Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church Official Sermon Archive. You can find more information about our church at www.rockhillsdachurch.org. We hope by listening to this message that you are encouraged and challenged in your walk with Christ. Now, I want to tell you a story this morning. Uh, I went to dinner uh, just a couple weeks ago with a few of you, so you heard this story somewhat. Uh, so you're going to hear it again, and because it's a great story. It is one of my favorite stories because it is just so shocking to me. Uh, and not shocking in the terrible tragedy way, but just really that happened kind of way. A friend of mine I went to school with at Southern, he and I were talking about uh, I actually forget what we were talking about, but he brought up a time that he went out to dinner with some of his friends. And you know what happens when a bunch of Adventists or a bunch of Christians go out to dinner, they usually pray before their meal. So they said, all right, who's going to pray? Now, there's no theology major sitting at the table for everyone to look at, right? If I'm at the table, everyone looks at the pastor to pray. When I was a student at Southern and a theology major, everyone looks at the theology major to have the prayer over the meal. There was no one to do that, so my friend volunteered. And when he volunteered, he prayed, and then at the end of his prayer, someone at the table looked at him and said, wow, that was a terrible prayer. I'm going to re-pray. And then did. And I can't believe it. I, that, that story is just so shocking to me that he did, and I cannot imagine how awkward the rest of that meal must have been. Because number one, he was just told that your prayer wasn't good enough. And then number two, it was followed up by a prayer that was not designed for blessing, but was designed simply to one-up someone else. You can figure out a little bit about someone by how they pray. And I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I don't mean I can tell every part of your character by how you pray. And I don't say that so that when someone prays up here or when I pray up here, you'll be trying to figure out all my little idiosyncrasies. That's not the point. But you can. You can tell a little bit about someone by how they pray, by the words they choose, by what they pray about. And honestly, you can figure out a whole lot more about yourself by analyzing the way that you pray. For example, I have several friends who open up their prayers with, instead of Father in Heaven or, or Dear God, they'll say, Daddy. And that will tell you a little bit about their relationship with God. And, and it will tell you not why they're, call, why they're calling God Daddy, but it will show you that maybe they have a different type of relationship with Him than you might. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But you can tell just a little bit about how someone has a relationship with God. And on a personal level, you know the reasons that you pray the way you do. I know that when I look at my own prayers, when I look at my own prayers, I can tell, I can see the elements of them that I've kind of stolen from other people over the years. Because you learn how to pray by watching others pray. But you know why you pray for some things, and you know why that you don't pray for others. You know why you avoid certain topics in your prayers. No one else does. The content of your prayers often will reveal what is going on in your heart. And I would submit 
that what you don't pray for is even more revealing. So my question to you this morning is, what are you praying for? And the flip side of it, what aren't you praying for? In Matthew chapter 18, and I believe I have preached on this text before, but I'm going to go just a step further with it this morning. We're going to be in, in verse 21, verse 21. Now this is after the famous conflict resolution passage of the Bible in Matthew 18, where Jesus says, if, if your brother sins against you, go and Talk to him one-on-one. -on -one. If that doesn't work, bring a witness. If that doesn't work, so he goes on through that conflict resolution model. And so Peter, at the end of this, in verse 21, it says, Then Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times, or seventy times seven depending on your translation. And then Jesus launches into the parable of the unforgiving servant, one of the most famous parables that he tells. It says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him of the debt. But when the same servant went out, likely, and I, I find this interesting, and he, Jesus really doesn't give you a kind of a timetable, so the way I like to picture this is he left the palace and then immediately encountered someone else. That's how I like, like he's still jumping for joy that he gets to keep everything and that he's been absolved of his debts, and he runs into someone who owes him. So verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Just so you understand, that is less than a tenth. That is less than a tenth. That was interesting. Uh... That was less than a tenth of what he owed his master. So he finds this servant with a much, much smaller debt. So continuing. And seizing him, he began to choke his servant, saying, Pay what you owe. He began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down, and doesn't this sound familiar, and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned his servant and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart.
This is one of the harder teachings of Jesus. And in fact, where I take this today will make it even more difficult. Because we preach and we believe, and I'm not going to try and disprove it. I don't, I fully believe we are saved absolutely by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Amen. But Jesus here and other times in the Gospels, he predicates your forgiveness on the forgiveness of others. Listen to how he ends it. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. He is making your forgiveness dependent on your willingness to forgive others. And at face value, this sounds absolutely works dependent. That to be forgiven, I must forgive. When we know that the only thing that saves us is accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior. Right? We know that that is the way we are saved, by acknowledging him as Savior, repenting of our sins, and asking forgiveness. But Jesus seems to add another step here in saying, you must also forgive. So how do we reconcile these two concepts? Well, we've got a lot of groundwork to get there, but we'll get there. The first lesson I have for you this morning is this. In light of this parable, and in light of every moment where you've had to forgive someone else, and in light of every moment where you've been slighted or hurt by someone else, the true model of being a Christian means that we are always operating with forgiveness as our goal. So in any heartache, in any slight, in any, in any heartbreak, when we are hurting because someone has hurt us, our goal is forgiveness. Now, and, and this is just being honest, sometimes that forgiveness seems a long way off. Because I know I should forgive, but man, am I hurting right now, and I cannot do that today. So maybe it'll be tomorrow, maybe it'll be a month from now, maybe it'll be a year from now, but I, as a Christian, knowing I am called to forgive, know that I must always live, and every step I take must be toward forgiveness as my goal. That in every heartache, I am looking for the soonest possible moment to be able to forgive someone who has hurt me. So, if you are broken and you are hurting and you have no idea what direction to go, I've given you the direction this morning. Go in the direction of forgiveness. Make every change you need to make in order to get to that goal. Take every step you need to take in order to get to that goal. If you're broken and you have no idea what to do today, start making decisions that will help you to arrive at forgiveness. When you wonder when you should forgive and when you shouldn't forgive, then I'll encourage you to remember this morning's scripture from Luke 17. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, the literalists among us will probably say, great, so seven times is my limit. 
Now, Jesus is intentionally using a little bit of hyperbole. Say, look, if they show up to you multiple times in the same day asking for forgiveness, then you are to forgive them. Well, pastor, I can't do it. Keep forgiving. My heart is broken. Keep forgiving. They keep doing this again and again and again. Keep forgiving again and again and again. But I've forgiven them so many times. Keep forgiving. But I want to add something to this. Because it's very important that we understand the difference between forgiveness and a full restoration of a broken relationship that has remained broken. Here's what I mean by this. This is especially true of those who are caught in abusive relationships. Forgiveness. While if someone has a debt and you're relieving of of that debt, usually forgiveness happens when the other person won't even repent. And usually forgiveness is needed not for the other person's sake, but for your own. And forgiveness doesn't always mean, okay, I forgive you, so let's be just as close as we were before as if this never happened. Sometimes there is a need for boundaries. But listen to me very closely. Boundaries should never be our first resort. In other words, if I'm looking to forgive someone, I'm looking to try and restore as much of that brokenness as possible. To fix and repair as much of that brokenness as possible. And when I see that it can't be, then finally I will put boundaries in place. But we should exhaust all other options possible before we seek those boundaries. Too quickly, married couples jump to divorce. Too quickly, regular relationships jump to splitting up. Too quickly, friendships turn to mutual hatred. And we jump to the boundaries of distance and separation before we've even really given them a chance to be forgiven. But absolutely, there is a place for boundaries and forgiveness. Because ultimately, you and I are not God. We don't have that same level of strength. But it should be our goal to one day have that same level of strength. But I want to go a little bit deeper with this forgiveness. Because I believe there is a state of your heart that that is really important as you move towards this goal of forgiveness in every moment. So go ahead and turn back just a few chapters to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. What I love about this church is that when I say turn in your Bibles, all of a sudden I hear all these pages turning. This is one of the reasons I don't use a PowerPoint. Because then there's no reason for you to open your Bible. I could have totally wrong scripture verses up there and you'd never know it. Unless you just happen to know what I'm talking about already. So I I am grateful for for you as a church family that you open your Bibles with me. And if you don't have your Bibles, don't don't feel it's not a guilt trip. I'm just excited and and encouraging those who do. So Matthew chapter 5, and go ahead and go all the way to verse 43. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he makes faith as practical as it can be. And he lays out the ideal for every single person. And so in Matthew chapter 5, after he's gone through all these different topics, he ends up at loving your enemies. 
says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So Jesus completely equivocates both sides, both the just and the unjust. He says, look, they both receive the same amount of rain. They both, they both live the same lives. They both have the same standard in the same state before me. And how much better are you if you do exactly what they do? So he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this is one of the hardest things that Christians have. I don't believe that social media was created to uh, increase wisdom. I believe it was created to uh, increase connection. And unfortunately, in many ways, it's actually been the opposite. But one of the things that social media does is it, it, it seeks to drive engagement. Social media seeks to drive engagement. So Facebook is not doing Facebook's job if you are not commenting or liking on someone else's stuff. Twitter is not doing its job if you're not retweeting and liking someone else's tweets. Social media is not doing its job if you are not engaging. So how do we get you to engage? We trigger your emotions. Now sometimes this can be through curiosity. We do this with our emails as well. There are email chains like this. You'll never believe what so-and-so did. So sometimes it's curiosity. Oh, I want to know. I want to know what so You'll never believe what this three-year-old said to me. Oh, I want to know what the three-year-old said to you. Sometimes it's a good thing. But more and more we are seeing the bad side of this, which is triggering your fear, your anxiety, and your anger. We see it in gun control arguments. We see it in every political argument possible. And what you see, ultimately, is things being given priority that will drive engagement. So there was a study done on the ads in the 2016 election on Facebook. And what they found out was that Trump's ads were shown to more people than Hillary Clinton's ads. And this wasn't out of favoritism. Facebook wasn't saying, we love Trump more than Hillary. It was simply because Trump's advertisements were more divisive and more aimed at people's emotions than Hillary's were. Which means that they drove more engagement naturally. So I'm not calling favoritism here. I'm simply saying, when you pinpoint someone's emotions, you can drive engagement. And what happens is it becomes a lot harder to love your enemies when you're full of fear, when you're full of anxiety, or when you're angry. I had someone claim that I saw this very thing on Facebook this week that someone claimed that those who are arguing for gun reform are under the influence of Satan. And when someone takes a hardline stance like that, it is very hard to have a normal conversation. Because they've come from a place of defense. And so loving your enemies becomes a lot harder when everything around you is meant to polarize you. 
It is meant to put you on one side of a camp or on another side of the camp. And I can guarantee you that as social media becomes more and more integrated in my generation, what you're going to see is, is a more and more difficult time loving those on the other side. You cannot love your enemies. You cannot pray for those who persecute you. And you cannot pray for your enemies unless you have a heart pointed towards forgiveness. It is impossible. Unless your heart is fully oriented around the idea of forgiveness, unless forgiveness is your goal, you cannot love your enemies because you won't want for them what you have received from God. Because to truly love someone means that you are casting your interests aside. And maybe your interest is that they feel the way that you feel. Maybe your interest is that they hurt the way that they hurt you. And so truly love someone means to cast your interests aside, your desires aside, and say, I want what's best for them, regardless of how I feel. This is a gut check question. It's not meant to guilt trip you. It's not my job as a pastor to guilt trip you. But this is an honest question that when I asked myself this, I was incredibly challenged. I was asked a version of this down in Florida at the pastor's conference by Lee Strobel, the author of Case for Christ. He asked this uh, question in general to all of the pastors, but I modified it for this morning. If God showed up to you right now, in the middle of this sermon, and said, I'm going to answer all of your prayers about your enemies, just the way that you've prayed them, just the way that you regard your enemies, what would happen? Would your enemies become friends? Or would they face terrible heartache and pain because you faced terrible heartache and pain? Or would nothing happen? Because we haven't been praying for them. It's hard to remember those that we don't like. It's hard to want what is best for someone that we don't like. But I want to challenge you this morning to remember that God's goodness is greater than anyone's evil. And no matter how bad someone is, no matter how terrible someone has treated you, there is always the chance for forgiveness and restoration. And there's always the chance that God will transform their heart. Just this week, I was contacted by someone I had not spoken to in over a year. Someone who had hurt me several times throughout college and never apologized. And for years I had hoped that one day it might come for years, I wanted what's best for that other person, and I said, look, I don't, I'm done with this. I've set the boundary, and I want you to have your life, and I'm going to have mine. And that's that. And I never thought that an apology would come. And after three years of waiting, this person contacted me, and I finally got the apology I had been waiting for. Because they were in a place where they were happy, 
where they were moving their life forward and they finally were able to come to a place of introspection to realize what had been going on in their own heart for years. Because in the heat of the moment, they had no clue. And there are some of you that will pray or have been praying for much longer than three years. And there are others that will pray for a day. And I think what that speaks to is not that God favors one prayer over another, but I think what that speaks to is the individual journey of each and every person. Because for some of us, we're really stubborn and it'll take us years to come around. But for others of us, maybe it'll only take a day. But ultimately, and this is how I want to close out this morning, we must remember one important thing. We forgive as we are forgiven. So remember where I said we'd end up this morning. It is how, do you, how is forgiveness expected as if it is a work that saves? This is the entire point of all of this message this morning. Your willingness to forgive others directly reflects how much you regard your own forgiveness. Because when you remember that if you go to God ten times in a day and ask forgiveness for the same sin, and he forgives you, but withhold that from someone else, what does that say about how you regard your forgiveness? What does that say about how I regard my own forgiveness when I withhold it from someone else, knowing that full well I've been forgiven for something much worse. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. God offered forgiveness before you ever made a mistake. Before you ever repented. For years... I have listened to an artist. His name is Levi the Poet. He's been incredibly influential on me and my thinking, mainly because the things that he talks about in his art um, are things that I don't hear anyone else talking about. He's a spoken word artist. He's Christian, evangelical, so not Adventist. But he has done, um, he has done spoken word about everything from pornography to shame to anxiety. And he does it in a way that speaks from the person who has experienced it. His father committed suicide in a hotel room, and he and his sister, I believe, are the ones who found the body. And he's written about that. And some of his work is the heaviest and hardest stuff I have ever listened to because of its content. But it's had a profound impact on me because of his willingness to address the things that I don't hear many others address. This year, he released a new album called Cataracts. I didn't, have it, I didn't realize it had released. I knew it was coming, but I didn't realize it had released until just this past week, and I heard it. Six tracks, starting with calling out false leaders in the church and those who would use the pulpit for their own gain, and ending on a track that was called Keep Forgiving. And throughout all six of those tracks, I sat down, I believe, on Tuesday night for an hour with... Lyric sites open, just listening and reading the lyrics as they came through. And I, and I could physically see, as a result, this refrain of keep forgiving interspersed throughout every single track. Randomly, you would hear keep forgiving as the refrain. 
And he ends in the second to last verse of the entire album. He says, keep forgiving as forgiven. We don't always get to wear the white hat. And pardon is not always preceded by repentance. In fact, I think, I think it's exactly the opposite. If it were not for love, I would have never come back. For those that you regard as your enemy, perhaps if it were not for love, they may never come back. And maybe by forgiving them the way that we have been forgiven, by showing them the love that we have first received from God, maybe, just maybe, they will come back. And maybe they will experience the same life-saving transformation in Jesus Christ that you and I receive.